You're listening to Chicago's Gospel Podcast, a show that explores how the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ shapes your life in an ever-changing city. In each episode, we'll take you on a tour of the city to discover how the gospel speaks into both the unique opportunities and challenges Christians face in an urban context. This is a show from Chicago and for Chicago. So let's get to work. Welcome back to Chicago's Gospel Podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode. I'm one of your hosts, and not normally the head host, Will, and I'm joined here with my partner in ministry. Partner in crime, Eric Feeker. Good, Eric. Well, we're recording in the month of May. We're not telling you which date, but uh, let me just say that May is a time for graduations, um, weddings, in our city, May is marking a new mayor mm. taking up the seat. So there's that for my family. And uh, I found out today for our guests' family, um, our oldest uh, have the same birthday. Mm. Uh, birthday, not birth year. And my son just turned 20 years old today or yesterday. Happy birthday, Haddon. Yep. And happy birthday, Ruben. Ruben. Yeah. And so there's a birthday, that's May's fun, then there's Mother's Day, and, you know, for whatever time of the month uh, that we are uh, recording this podcast, there's Cinco de Mayo. Yes. Cinco de Mayo. So I, uh, we don't normally do this, but let's just get something clear, just so we don't offend our, our Mexican friends, that Cinco de, de Mayo is really not a huge deal in Mexico. Mm. And it's not to be confused with Mexican Independence Day, which is the 16th of September. That's their 4th of July. So the fact is, is that Cinco de Mayo has become much bigger outside of Mexico than it is in Mexico. Um, so Cinco de Mayo was just a uh, kind of a military um, victory that the Mexicans won over um, Bonaparte, I believe. So anyway, I want to test out our knowledge of Mexican holidays and all things international for you, Eric. Let's see. What do you call somebody who's an English speaker? Like what's the official term for an English speaker? Anglo. Anglo. Saxon. Okay. What do you call somebody who speaks French? French speaking people. That part of the world that speaks French. <laughs> the French. French. Right. So you are, are, are getting very close. An English speaker is a Anglophone. Anglophone. And what would that make? The French? Francophone. Francophone. Very good. How about this? Where are we going with this? We'll see. How about <laughs> Spanish speakers? Hispanophone. Yes, actually, that is correct. Wow. Ding, ding, ding. Now, this is a tough one. What would you call the Portuguese-speaking side of the world? Portaphone. <laughs> That's what I it's would like have a, thought. It's like a portable phone. It's yes. Portuguese-speaking person. But our, our guest today, who we'll introduce in just a, a minute, he would uh, beg to disagree. What is a Portuguese-speaking person, part of the world, country called? Lusophone. 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 Yes. Okay. Here's another one. What continent has the most countries with Portuguese as the official language, Eric? 
Portuguese as the official you said language. said most countries? Most countries. Not most population. Not the most population. Most. My, my guess is it's a trick question. Let me go with South America. It's not a trick question. Continent? Be Africa. That's why I, I said most countries or most mm. population. Because mm. with most population, it would be Brazil. So yes. South America. Mm. Yes. And why bring all this up? Well, you know, we, you know, are thinking about Cinco de Mayo. I'm always thinking about tacos. But the subject of our, our podcast today is called Sister Cities. Mm. And did you know that Chicago has a program that they've had for, I think, 60 years called a Sister City program? And so uh, one of our sister cities is actually Mexico City. A couple others, just to name a few, are Accra, Bogota from my home country, my home country Athens, Casablanca, Kiev, Galway for our Irish-speaking people, Milan, Prague, Sydney, Toronto, and Warsaw, just to name a few. Those are sister cities that have some kind of formal partnership for business and whatnot. Um, so I'm bringing all of that up to say that for our purposes today, we are representing a new kind of sister city. And as we celebrate on this podcast, that the unchanging gospel is what we proclaim in an ever-changing city, I have a question today that we hope our guests can answer. And this, does the unchanging gospel that we love and proclaim in the ever-changing city of Chicago, does it work in other cities? Mm. We hope the answer to that is yes. And to help <laughs> us answer that, we have the pleasure of having a brother all the way from the other side of the world, from Lisbon, Portugal. His name is Tiago Oliveira. Yes. Tiago, welcome to Chicago's Gospel Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back. Tiago, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, a little bit about your family. Tiago is a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Lisbon, so it is a bit of a historical church in the country of Portugal. But just tell us, humanize yourself to us. Who are you? Born and raised in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, married to Marta. Hmm. Three boys. Uh, poor my Mar oldest. Poor Martha. <laughs> <laughs> only, only man. <laughs> uh, my oldest just turned 18. Wow. And then I have two others, 15 and 13. So lived most of my life in Lisbon, Portugal, till 2012 when I moved to the U.S. to study at RTS Jackson. Finished my MDiv there. Started a PhD at Puritan Reformed. Uh, always had the plan to go back to Portugal to continue to be a pastor and to be involved in theological education. Um, a four-year plan turned into a nine-and-a-half-year plan. That is but, here in the States. Yes. Yeah. But by the end of 2021, uh, we went back to Portugal, where I became the, first, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Lisbon. And we also started our seminary that we had planned for a mm. long time. Martin Busser Seminary, Portugal. Great. And so you were here in the United States studying um, during the pandemic. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. I was in D.C. You were in Washington, D.C. at the time. Well, he was good. the one pulling the strings for lockdowns in D.C. <laughs> oh, no, not for sure. Not me for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Tiago, you got some education here in the United States, and so your boys spent a good deal of their childhood, formative part of their childhood here in the United States. 
And now you guys have been living back in Lisbon for about two years, right? Yes, almost. Yeah, a year and a half. Almost two years. Okay, good. And you got called to be the pastor of First Baptist Church Lisbon, Mm -hmm. right? And that's a church you grew up in? I grew up at First Baptist Church. Uh, I left when I was 14, 15 years old. I was still in the city. I was in a nearby church. I maintain a good relationship with with them. So uh, it was it was a church that I that I still know well, and I continue to follow throughout my life. So Tiago, you grew up in Lisbon. You're now back in Lisbon. You've seen the city. My guess, through multiple iterations, it's probably changed a lot. It's probably remained the same in a lot of respects as well. So we, we talk a lot about how the unchanging gospel speaks and informs our life in a city that's constantly changing. So you find yourself in a city that is constantly changing. W- what have been some of the biggest changes you've seen culturally in Lisbon since you were a kid until now? So just a little bit of uh, history, just as you know that there was a dictator in Italy, Mussolini, Mm -hmm. and Franco in Spain. We had our own, also a right-wing dictator. Uh, His name was Salazar, uh, and the dictatorship only ended by 74. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually the first generation post-dictatorship, so in a a democratic regime. Mm. So when I was growing up, the, the country was still a very poor country. So it was not the city that you found, Will, when you visited us. Yes. A very poor city. We were still not yet part of the European Union, so we became part of the European Union in 86. Um, and that was, I, I faced all the changes from uh, the dictatorship times, a very poor, underdeveloped country, into what it is now, especially Lisbon, uh, a, a modern European, uh, secular, cosmopolitan, uh, cosmopolitan, very diverse city. Yeah. Um, and so with all the changes that come from that. So uh, in the times of the dictatorship, very, very conservative Catholic uh, to what it is now, traditionally Catholic, but mostly secular. Mm. So that is kind of the kind of the feeling, both in terms of economic changes, yeah. as you can imagine, during a dictatorship, uh, education is very suppressed, mm. so is only given to some, and so there was a big change there, and also a change in language. So in the generation of my parents and before that, Europe was mostly a francophone type mm. of world. So. People would communicate within Europe in French. So Mm. my dad knew French and people in his generation that knew a second language would be French. So I'm the first generation learning English. So now it's an Anglophone type of world that that we live in. So you you are an English and Portuguese speaker. Yes. Any other um, living languages that you have at your command? No. No. (laughs) I can understand Spanish, but I will not dare speak in Spanish. (laughs) Sure. Uh, So to help us who are on this side of the globe, tell us what does membership in the European Union mean? Just, I mean, just what you said that you guys, uh, Portugal 86, what does that even mean? Like, I don't really understand. So things change significantly since what was the European Union well, it was not even called European Union back, back, back then. When we got in was 
EC, European Community. Uh-huh. Uh, then it changed to ECC and then uh, or EEC because the, the letters in Portuguese are in a different order. Um, and then now what, what, what you know as European Union. And that also means a change in the, in the strengthening of the bonds between countries and their responsibilities. So among other things, it means that uh, the borders uh, physically just disappeared. They are still there, but we can go from country to country without, um, without needing even a, a passport. So I have my uh, citizen card that you don't have in the U.S., mm. And you would be scared to know that there are things like this in oh. Europe. So this is my citizen card oh that my. the people that are listening cannot see, but we do have. So tremble, Americans. So, so wait, this is not a driver's license? No, this is a citizen a card. citizen card. And I have my citizen number. So this applies in all European Union. It has my country. Yeah. And in the back, tremble even more, Americans. It has the... <laughs> tax uh, identification number, it has the social security number, <laughs> and even has the health system number. Whoa, whoa, Okay, whoa. every single person in Portugal that are a citizen, they have this card with their picture, with their signature, with their height, uh, with their gender. Don't lose that. With their date of birth. With their signature and all these numbers, you're in the, you're in the Interpol database. I get it. So, <laughs> it, so I I appreciate kind of your cheeky tone there, brother. But to some people who might be listening to our podcast, especially some American Christians, mm-hmm. to hear European Union would right. smack of the one world government. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do you how would you calm some of our <laughs> listeners that we don't have some kind of covert. After that little bit, it's going to take a yeah, lot of yeah. convincing. And yeah. I did it. I did it on uh, purpose because I lived in the U.S. for ten years. Yeah. So I know the type of reaction that it kind of emotional, right. physical reaction that it that it that it gives. But but my take on that would be first: this is not the first empire. Just think about the Roman Empire. Hmm. Uh, that was even uh, to a larger extent bigger than the European Empire, the mm-hmm. European Union. It's not an empire, but it's a union. Uh, then, then secondly, it's. Um, it, I, I think if things were so simple, <laughs> prophecy both in the past and now would not be difficult to discern. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, just think even about 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 the fact that we just had recently Brexit. Mm-hmm. So union is not necessarily growing. Mm. Uh, I don't know what will be of the European Union in 50 years from now. Mm. So I would be looking more for other signs. And I think that um, in terms, especially in terms of, of ter- in terms of eschatological convictions, uh, I would be more concerned, and as a Christian, as a pastor, in calling the church to faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And holiness. I think that's the reason why Revelation was written, mm. right? Yes. Was a letter to the seven churches in order to encourage some and to correct others. Mm. And so, and to show that uh, the Lord is in control and is sovereign right. over every single reality, right. and including over those who oppose God. 
Mm. And even if they all unite together, the Lord will still prevail. Mm. So I think it's not necessarily uh, or, or fully for us to be kind of spending our time and trying to track eventually the political dangers that are coming, but a call to the church, number one, to be encouraged in the face of persecution, mm-hmm. and second, a call to faithfulness to those who are in, in sin. Mm. Um, so that, that, that will be my take as a member of the European Union. That's a good word. And a member of First Baptist Church of Lisbon. Yes. And a member of Christ's glorious bride. Amen. That's that's even more important. So if he is sovereign over all things and all times, that means he's also sovereign over Lisbon and over Portugal as a country. Amen. Um, how, granted, you were a little kid when when you know the country was very poor as you were describing earlier to now where it is today how have you heard about how the gospel has been received differently throughout that time is it does does there seem to be more inroads for the gospel now than there were 50 years ago less the same um how how is the gospel opportunities how, how have they changed throughout the, last the 50 challenges years? are are just different um we continue to be, if you're an evangelical in Portugal, first you need to embrace the fact that you are a foreigner in your own country. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Elect exile. Culturally, in terms of beliefs, mm-hmm. uh, everything in the culture is saying you do not belong here. Uh, be, because, of course, our faith not only changes some of, of our beliefs, but actually changes the way that we perceive reality and see things. So Portugal as a traditional Catholic country has a completely different worldview than true uh, Christianity. And so, and then there are just other factors. So for, uh, for an evangelical in the seventies, it would mean those are the Protestants, Mm -hmm. they are enemies. Mm -hmm. And so, especially in rural areas, there was significant persecution Mm. And, uh, and evangelical Protestant families were kind of outcasts. Do not play with those kids because those kids are Protestant. Mm. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Right. Today, I face just different challenges. I go, I go to the bank and they ask me, what, what do you do? And I say that I'm, that I'm an evangelical pastor. And the guy looks at me as, I, as I'm a thief, a criminal, mm-hmm. because he connects it with Brazilian prosperity gospel. Mm. And so the conversation, the tone of the conversation immediately changes. So the, the Portuguese in general, whether they're churched or not, they, they're aware of the, the Brazilian manifestations of the prosperity gospel? Yeah, because some of the few largest so-called publicly mm-hmm. uh, evangelical churches are Brazilian prosperity gospel churches. Yeah. And, and of course, issues like the tides and mm. things like that become very uh, prominent, right? And they look with it with very with a lot of suspicion. Um, and so, but but those are just small examples. I don't, I don't completely feel it on a daily basis. Mm. Uh, but you need to embrace the fact that you are a foreigner in your own country, right? Um, and so, I I just see the differences and the changes as different challenges. Because uh, we continue to be a very small movement. Uh, at, at this point, uh, we are a little bit 
less than 2% according to the last census. Mm. Uh, and even those 2% are a big umbrella um, of what people identify as Protestant or evangelical or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, I would just interpret it as as different challenges. Yeah. So you started Martin Butzer Theological Seminary, what, two years ago, one year ago? Well, it was announced. Um, it was announced, um, I think, the first time almost five years ago. Uh, and then we did some um, one-event things, like small conferences, just to explain people who we are and what we were seeking to do. And then in the year that the pandemic started, we were planning to already offer some classes, but the pandemic just closed uh, those plans out. And so we started our class. We're just finishing our first academic year. Mm. So if a seminary is starting in Lisbon, there's certainly opportunities to rejoice over what God is doing, even if it's not as big as we would hope or pray. Um, tell us a bit about the seminary, how that's been an encouragement to you. I know it's been a lot of work, but I trust it's also been an encouragement and other ways that you see the gospel at work in Lisbon right now. Yeah. I think uh, first, just a quick observation. I think, and in th- this because of our culture, so uh, Portuguese culture is very pessimistic in, mm. in the outlook and approach to life. Is that the saudade? Well, saudade, it's a, it's a word that is not translatable it means kind of a um, a deep longing, mm. a nostalgia mm. uh, of looking to the past of mm. something that we missed. It's kind of the of the Portuguese way of looking for the discovery times and see how big we are, the largest empire at at one point in the history, good old days, the wealthier empire, the good old days, and now here we are, poor and on the fringes of Europe, nobody <laughs> cares about us. And <laughs> but, but, I, but I think it's also uh, theological because I think that mostly um, Catholic theology is very, is very somber, is very, is very dark. <laughs> um, it was interesting, and I'm not even going to comment if I agree with that or not, but that uh, some evangelicals when I was a kid uh, would look at the cross with the supposed Christ in it, mm-hmm. like the Catholic Church has, and they would make a big point saying, our Christ is not dead, is not there. Yeah. He is alive. So we have a bare cross. Yeah, You see what I mean? So it, it, it gives you a different outlook, because Catholic theology keeps you kind of in prison to yourself. Mm-hmm. You are always looking to your own sin. You need to make penance over and over and over and over again. Um, and, and Christ is being killed over and over and over again in mass, right? And so it has that type of somber approach to reality in which things are not solved yet. And even after you die, uh, just be aware that most likely you're going to purgatory because you need still to continue to cleanse yourself and to be punished until you're completely cleansed to go to heaven. Um, so, so Portugal, and especially manifested in Lisbon, because I'm assuming Lisbon is sort of the cultural center of your country, mm-hmm. right? In terms of its uh, its role in the in the international stage, is it safe to say that it's you said secular? So it's it's secular, but is like uh, is the default um, way of thinking religiously, or 
or religion? Is it Catholicism? Is it, you know, somebody may not go to church or even practice anything, but um, just like in any other religion, if they grew up in a certain country or home, is the default Catholic? Uh, so I would say that younger generations, um, I would say by default, they would not call themselves Catholic anymore. Mm. But my generation and above, the default is that. Yeah. Uh, which does not mean that they are conservative Catholics, mm. but that traditional, that's their ascendancy, that's their heritage, so to say. That's why the feeling is very secular. Uh, it's not, secular should not be confused with atheist. Mm. I think that's one of the great confusions that sometimes people make. Most of the people in Lisbon, even in the capital, are not atheists. Mm. Um, they are, uh, it's a pluralistic society where also, where spirituality is very much present in people's lives. Uh, people just believe that truth is relative and that each one has their own truth. It's type of the image that we got used to of the elephant. So each religion and each person uh, approaches the elephant in mm. different parts, but they are all touching the elephant. They are all searching for the same thing, yeah. all seeking for the same God, either more consciously or unconsciously, either uh, ha giving it a name or not. It's the same God. And so you have your own truth. I have my own truth. We live it in different ways. But in the end, we are all for the same. Mm. So, uh, so secular in that sense. That's a helpful distinction that uh, it's not just good for for Portugal, but for any of our listeners anywhere, is to know the difference between, at least practically, between secular and atheist. Mm -hmm. One does not necessarily mean the other. Yeah. And I, when I was with you back in the fall, I was surprised pleasantly. And I've been through Europe, met many of the major cities in Europe um, a couple decades ago. I was surprised to see the the cosmopolitan representation in Lisbon. I saw people from from Asia. I saw people from Africa there in your in your city, and so they're probably bringing their worldviews, which aren't necessarily denying any kind of theism, but like adding to the mix. Actually, I would say and and understand that we need to. Every time we, we look at reality, um, uh, I think that sometimes we make a big confusion. Is like seeing everything as political. Mm -hmm. So my observations not, are not political or, or as a pastor. I, right. leave, I leave the political observations to the side. It's not what I want to make here. But the, the, the cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan nature of Lisbon, I think, has been beneficial to us for the church. Um, first, because, uh, and especially, um, Brazilian brothers and sisters that have been coming to, uh, our country. So the, the evangelical community almost doubled in 10 years, according to the census. Wow. And that it's not new believers, mm -hmm. uh, mostly, but people that came from abroad. So you might say, well, but that's not growth of the kingdom is just that people move to another place. And that is true. It's not the end game. But the fact that we have uh, more evangelicals, it means also stronger communities. Mm -hmm. and, and if a community, instead of having 40 people, has 70 people, is more robust. 
And so that is, that is a good thing. Right. But secondly, because other cultures also bring different flavors, even in terms of uh, spirituality. And that means that new opportunities for conversation and for evangelism uh, occur. Uh, the main challenge then becomes how do you communicate the gospel to Portuguese people? Uh, and I, as I live in that neighborhood, and I'm not there for a long time now, but just a little bit more than one year, I think that in the future, our greatest challenge will be how can we actually talk to Portuguese? Mm. Because I think that it will be more, uh, much easier for us to have people from other nations who are more prone and more open to hear the, the gospel because they come from different cultural contexts and many of them much more open to speak about religion. In Portuguese, speaking about religion is almost taboo mm -hmm. because it's something that is from the private realm. <laughs> so I think that on the one hand, I think it's, it's beneficial to us, and I think that mostly it is beneficial. Um, I can say that the new members in our church are uh, a couple of, uh, a Chinese couple and an, an Angolan brother. So, which just proves exactly Praise what God. I was right. what I was saying. Um, on the other hand, how will we be able to talk to Portuguese people? Right. Uh, and I think that that will be our challenge for the future. Do you, do you see any need, or let me phrase it this way: Does Portugal need Western, traditional Western missionaries, like coming from the UK, coming from the United States? Well, the, the quick question is yes. Missionaries are always needed uh, because people that are, that are committed to give their lives to the preaching of the gospel are always needed, uh, either locally or abroad. Okay? The only difference is that a missionary is, is willing to live their own country to preach the gospel in a cross-cultural context. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, of, of course, that usually uh, we see missionaries as church planters, so mm -hmm. that they go to kind of breaking ground. They're not going to break ground for wells, as well as as good as yeah. having wells as, but breaking ground for churches. Yes, um, I would say though that I think we should approach missions at this point in a in a more broader sense because I I think that in a globe in the globalized world that we live in. We have more opportunities for cross-cultural missionary work that should be explored. So especially in the technological era that, that we live, imagine that a family from your church that is willing and can work anywhere in the world and is willing to come and be a member at First Baptist Church mm. to help in the church revitalization. Yeah. You will be a missionary of sorts, right? Right. But you are not the traditional missionary. Right. Yes. But we will welcome you, open arms. Yeah. So we need faithful members that know what true Christianity is, that know what the true gospel is, right. that know even what a healthy church is. Uh, yeah, that now come you're and help the in our field. <laughs> in our in our work. Yeah. You see what I mean? So yeah. I think that missionaries are still needed, and even in the in the traditional sense. Um, but that's where. You and we'll get to this perhaps later in another episode. That's where the theological seminary comes in, mm -hmm. in the sense where you you will be training um, Lucifone um, pastors. Um, so you have connections to Angola, 
um, your seminary and the Portuguese Reform Network has connections, deep connections, not just to Brazil, but to Mozambique, where you have spoken several times and been training pastors there. So that's going on. But you're saying, uh, Tiago, that that uh, somebody listening to this podcast from Chicago has the kind of job where you know they can work from anywhere. You're saying that if they could arrange it legally and get the passport and the papers, that they could move to Lisbon and just plug right and plug into your church after, of course, learning Portuguese. Yeah, and I and I think there are a lot of opportunities like that around around the world, right? Even with English speaking churches, so it's a it's something that is happening more and more. Think about the uh, the global world that we live in, in which English has become just the second language in most of the countries, in which most of the people speak English apart from their native language. And also the movement of that I'm seeing happening more and more and more, that in major cities there are English-speaking churches. So yeah. imagine that you do not learn Portuguese, uh, but you want to plug in and help uh, any sort of missionary work. Uh, just you can talk to your pastor that has Will has a lot of connections concerning this, and he will give you several English-speaking churches that they can serve in. Just plug in and help the church and the missionary work there. Right. Uh, so I think that the missionary opportunities are increasing, and I think that um, it, we should not just think about missionary work in a traditional way that we thought mm. that would limit how many people could do that. Right, right. But now, yeah, you can be a, a missionary. And imagine, it can be just for two or three years. Right. You go st strengthening that church for that time period, uh, and then you come back to... you to your home country. Speaking our language. Um, and not, not, I don't really want to start a, a new thread of conversation here, but it is, is really impacted me to know because I learned it from you that the Protestant reformation that we cherish here in America and really all over the world, um, having kind of started in continental Europe, it didn't reach Portugal. And so really, Portugal is experiencing um, the stronger incursions of the gospel in the 1800s, right? So it's still relatively young because your church in Lisbon, as you pointed out to me, is actually younger than our church here that celebrates 130 years this year. Um, so that's fascinating to me that the, the gospel didn't reach Portugal in the, in the Reformation. Um, that being said, what do you envision if you could just dream up a scenario in five, 25, 50 years for what the gospel's growth could look like in your nation? What does that look like? Simple question at the end. Very simple. <laughs> uh, if I could just highlight two things, I would say a grow in a better understanding of the gospel in right. evangelical churches, mm. which would mean a growth in Reformed theology, because I don't believe that you can dissociate the two, because it's a correct and biblical understanding of what the gospel is and its implications. Right. Um, and as a consequence of that, number two, more healthy churches. Mm. So I'm a, I'm a big believer, let me say, 
of, of church revitalization. Which is what you're doing. Yes. At a hundred year old plus church. Uh, yeah. of and, and I don't say that church planting is not important. I think it's equally important, but in my country, uh, especially with the resources that, that we have, uh, if the churches that we have, if the evangelical churches that we have were healthy, we, we would be in a good condition. We, we would have a good evangelical mm. testimony in our, in our country. Would you even be, in a sense, mission sending at that point if you had? I would say so. Yeah. How is it possible, I ask, that, that for example, my denomination, Baptists, barely have any missionary presence in Portuguese-speaking African countries? Mm. That, wow. that, for me, just shows how weak we are spiritually. We're wow. not doing missionary work. Uh, which means a wrong understanding of the gospel itself. Um, and so I would just highlight these, these two things, that if by the end of my life I would see a better gospel testimony in more healthy churches, I would be very, very happy. May God do that. Amen. Praise God. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chicago's Gospel Podcast. And in a sense, we have gained uh, another sister city as gospel people, mm -hmm. as Christians in the city of Lisbon. It's no accident, and we're thankful for our brother Tiago Oliveira yes. for, for being with us. Thank you. And um, thank you for listening in, and we hope that uh, you'll tune in the next time we release a podcast episode. God bless you. Thanks for joining the conversation on Chicago's Gospel Podcast. If you're benefiting from these conversations, consider sharing this podcast episode with a friend or neighbor. We would also love to hear about topics you want to discuss. So reach out to us with your ideas at gospel at ASCCChicago.org. Until next time, remember that Christ's unchanging gospel is transforming your life in an ever-changing city.